Um, so I want to start off with a little story. Um, me and my kids, we have this probably two or three times a week uh, tradition that we've started where um, we do story without a book, is what it's called. Um, for a while we were reading through different books and I would start improvising and start telling stories based off of those books. We have a pretty creative family, so the kids started doing the same thing as well. They started telling stories to each other after they go to bed. So this last week, I think I told a story about, um, I don't know what prompted, I usually just look around the room and see something and just start talking and kind of see where it goes. It's not planned, and um, a few days ago, I think the story was about, um, they saw this girl named um, Amber, I think, uh, in the mirror, and it looked like a reflection of them but then they found that she came through the mirror and there was these bank robbers and they found out they weren't actually robbing banks, they were coming from the other world beyond the mirror because they were so impoverished over there, they had to come get food. And it just sounds ridiculous, but the kids love it. My oldest is eight, and so they're just sitting there at the edge of their beds just on every detail. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And something I was realizing when I was preparing and reading this text is that from the moment we're just little kids and hearing our first stories to even now, there's something so attractive about a story that has the most mundane, normal setting, but then the characters are just wrapped into this cosmic, larger-than-life tale. So we have Narnia, which is one of my favorites, one that we've read to our kids a couple times, where we have you know, the four siblings that are playing hide-and-go-seek in a large house and all of a sudden stumble into the wardrobe, right, and go through in the other end, they're all of a sudden in snow, and they're in Narnia, and they're in this bigger, this meaningful um, place out of their mundane life. Um, you see the same thing in, in Harry Potter. You see the same thing over and over in Wrinkle in Time, all these great children's stories. You have the most wide-eyed fascination out of these meaningful stories that come out of the mundane. Um, we all have that, too. Even if we've lost a lot of that childlike awe at those kind of stories, we still want to have the same kind of meaning. We want to have impact in our lives, in our workplace, in our marriage. And even, even though some of us will have given up on that long ago, we still desire that. We still desire to be noticed, to have something meaningful come out of the most mundane parts of our life. And so, um, as you guys, a lot of you would know, we haven't had a normal um, church service for a little while. Last week we had Celebration Sunday where we looked back at the whole 2016 just to see what God has done. Um, before that, um, we had Christmas Eve service here where we just went through the whole narrative, the whole story of redemption in the Bible from the creation to Jesus being born to we, we are commissioned um, along with Jesus to this world. And the cool thing about both those days that I was thinking about it is it really, I, I left both those services with this feeling of awe. That I was caught up in such an amazing cosmic story. And it's the same thing um, that I think that God calls us into continually. A bigger picture coming out of the most normal things in our lives. Um, it's big and it's, it's, it's recognizing that even though our lives may seem just con consistently routine, and sucked into the minutia of life, there's a, deep, um, there's a deep story that's much bigger. So as we look at the, the setting in Babylon, that lengthy scripture text that we just read, Israel, this picks up like in the very middle of the story of the Bible, where Israel, who is God's chosen people, 
has been taken captive, at least a large portion of them have been taken captive. And the way it happened historically is they took kind of the, the people they thought would be most useful to them in Babylon, and the Babylonians took them out, and they actually led them by sticking fish hooks to their upper lip and dragged them all the miles back into Babylon. And then left some kind of under house arrest, so to speak, um, back in Israel. But they took the ones that they felt were most useful to them and enslaved them, carrying them off. And Jeremiah's writing in a time where this would have been fresh in their minds. There hadn't, we don't know exactly how much time's elapsed, but there hasn't been that much time. They have right in the back of their minds the realization that they are, in the most clearest of terms, in enemy territory. The ones that have wiped them out, the ones that have starved them out, the ones that have dragged them literally across the wilderness, um, they were sitting there in their backyard living amongst them. Um, there were prophets in that time, as we read, that were saying that their deliverance was near. They were saying within a few years, God would come and rescue them and bring them back. And Jeremiah denounces these as false prophets. They were giving this hope, this false hope, um, and telling them there's no need to put down roots. Don't get too comfortable. Don't work on loving your city and actually being rooted in it. But be ready to go. There was kind of an escapist mentality that it happened. Um, and, and we want to, like, right away, oftentimes I want to, like, jump to, right, how does that apply to my life? Like, are we living in exile? And, and the fact is it does in a lot of ways. But this was a little bit of a different situation. Israel, way before this point in time, had been told by God there was already prophecies saying that because of their disobedience and because they weren't living in dependence on their God, that they would be carried away into exile. And they heard those and as empty threats, possibly, and just hardened their hearts and did not listen to God's warning and his call. And the backdrop, the prophecy that was given far earlier about why they would be carried into exile, the 70 years that they would be there living in enemy territory in Babylon was because they did not Sabbath, they did not trust God. Um, just like earlier in Israel's history, they were called to trust God by not gathering manna that came from heaven while they were in the desert. And they were to trust him by, by saying, we believe that God will continue to provide that manna um, the day after the Sabbath, a lot of them hoarded that and did not trust God. In the same way, God had called them to let their, lie, their, their land lie fallow and to essentially let, let the land Sabbath and, and rest and to not work. And to, um, there's a freedom that's supposed to come every 49 years, the year of Jubilee. And Israel was not living in obedience to that, but was selfishly hoarding and not trusting God. And this 70 years is a culmination of that. So those 70 years correspond to the amount of time that they did not Sabbath those hundreds of years before that. And so what we see here in the midst of the message, although false prophets are saying, no, like God's going to come with this miraculous deliverance soon, Jeremiah is saying he will deliver, he will come, but if you notice, 70 years is not going to be with any, any of their lifetimes. Those that are old enough to actually really understand that message will be gone and dead by the time that God actually delivers. And so his charge to them, instead of the charge being, um, you know, don't buy houses, sell everything you have, do some miracles, try to build the temple, start preaching against the Babylonians, rather than this dynamic kind of commission to go out and make a huge impact, he gives what I, I never realized, but reading it, like a very simple, kind of like this could, anyone 
could do this. It's not even like a, a Christian-y thing. A very simple commission to build houses, plant gardens, to live there, get married, raise sons and daughters. This is, it's, it's not a very spectacular, it's actually a very normal commission. So the question I want to look at today is why? Why was this charge so quiet, so peaceful? Why was this commission given the way it was? Um, they were a very small minority. There were about 3,000 um, Jews that were living in Babylon here. So com- compared to the, the city of Babel, which is the largest city of the day, um, they were a very small minority. Why didn't God choose to do some miraculous overthrow like with Gideon, you know, 300 men? And the question I hope will be answered that God often chooses to use the most um, mundane, normal, everyday things to make huge, lasting, cosmic impacts. So um, we're going to look at that we are commissioned disciples. On the next slide. Um, a few years into, into the new year already, and you guys probably know the, the phrase, new year, new you, all these different resolutions of, well, I'm going to try this now, I'm going to change to this diet, I'm going to start doing this exercise. I started CrossFit in the new year. Um, it wasn't actually, I've never done a new year resolution, I've just done things that look like their new year's resolution, they just happened to start right in January, so that was completely coincidental, but um, our society loves um, just the idea of having this depth of purpose, of I'm going to change my life here. I'm going to have a, I'm going to make more of an impact, more of a difference in this new year. Um, it seems like the commission we see in Jeremiah is new year, same you, maybe a little different, but just same stuff going forward. It doesn't sound as flashy. It's not as good a catchphrase. Um, but the idea of God commissioning his people to, um, to kind of have this um, Leaven in the loaf, this quiet, still, subtle presence where they live that makes this lasting difference is something we see all through Scripture. So I was going to take us through a couple different sections showing that the way that God had it for Israel here is the way it's always been and the way it will be. So in the very first commission we have towards how we're to live, um, after men and women are created in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1, 27, 28, um, God gives this first commission of be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, take dominion. It's all these things, this idea of subduing, they're given this garden place and they're essentially told to like tame, tame the garden, like plant gardens, like work the earth. Like work was not a part of the curse. Work changed as a result of the curse, but work is a good thing. The things that we see we tend to see work as more something to, to avoid and get around. When God actually gave that as his first commission, it was part of what was good. Um, and one thing that I was realizing more recently thinking about it is that we often think of you know, the first day of the week as you know, our Monday, our work day. And if you guys have been listening to, to a refrain Pastor Dan's been saying for this last year is that we consider this Sunday, this, our Sabbath, as our first day of the week. And it really is rooted from how God created Adam and Eve. Because if you think about it, you had six days of creation, right? And men and women are made on the sixth day. So you think they, their days would be one through six, but really their first day was the seventh day. Their first day on the earth was a day of rest. And it's the same, same principle that we see all through scripture that we're not to work in order to rest, but we're to work 
from our rest. We're to parent from rest in Jesus. We're to love our spouses from rest in Jesus. And even though it seems, it would seem more productive to just focus on let's start working until we need to rest, God gives a very, very different principle all through Scripture in the same way that it would seem more productive to say, let's hoard up this food so we never go hungry. Let's continue to work and not let our land lie fallow so we can continue to produce more and gain wealth and gain comfort. God actually says our greatest comfort is in resting in him and then from that working, living, parenting, etc. So after we see this, um, this principle of, of the, creation, the created we are created first to rest in Jesus and then move into our, our work and our lives. Um, that paradigm shift, it, it's complicated because we see a couple chapters later in Genesis that the curse um, complicated God's commission. We see that there was sweat now in our work. I don't know what like, good hard work would look like without sweat. Uh, we will see that someday in heaven. Um, there was thorns. There was pain. And then to top it all off, it says it would be endless it would, it would not cease. Um, I think about it this way, like if, if through humanity's sin, there was a curse on the earth that affected how hard it was um, to, to, to parent, to have relationships, and even just to work physically, I think of it like this picture of like a curse was just laid on the earth, almost like ashes would just cover the ground as an indication that something horrendous had happened in the past. And it's much the same with the, the curse on creation. Everything, the, the work that we're called to do is still good. Our lives that we're called to live are still good. But now they're entangled with this curse. And that we start to see work as something more to be avoided than enjoyed. And we start to see our parenting and our marriages as something to just try to just get by with rather than pour into and really pursue. Um, we see the exact same kind of things today um, where for sweat we have rather than work being refreshing and life-giving, um, we come away feeling exhausted. It's because we haven't gone into it from rest. With thorns, rather than things going smoothly for us, there's always snags and complications and workarounds that we have to do. Things never go as they should. And then with pain, our bodies increasingly hurt under the demands and weight of our work. I mean, even, even for this, we have this utopia, this, this picture of retirement, the perfect retirement. Everyone wants to have that perfect time where they can just stop working. But like, think about it. Like, your bodies have been working all that time to lead up to it, so you're just going to rest really tired. <laughs> like, retire, many people work so hard for retirement that they get there and they realize that, well, now my body's decaying just like everything else. And that's not really where our hope is found. And there's an endless fight towards that. Um, and work's, work's had a toll on us. Life has had a toll on us. So then we move in the story where God starts with the first great commission of it is good to live our lives for God's glory and really seek to, to kind of to tame and, and to, to work this earth. And then it was spoiled. There was a complicating of that curse. And then without that, work would have no point. Like our point would be to work as little as possible and to parent in a way that was you know, as long as the kid's happy and to have our marriages just be trying to get by and without like a redemption, without a lifting of that curse, there really is no point. But as Christians, this is where the gospel come in, that comes in that we believe that um, even though most people describe the life of Jesus as Jesus was born, lived, died, 
buried, resurrected, ascended. Dun, 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 dun. Really, five or six, I don't remember how many I just listed, but most of those happen within a short span of a couple of years. Like, chronologically, if we actually kind of even it out, it'd be Jesus who was born, lived, 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 died, buried, resurrected. But we don't focus on that. We have this, we have this idea that what Jesus really accomplished on the cross, um, that the idea of the great exchange, that Jesus took our sin on the cross and gave us this position of rightness with God, and he gave us his righteousness. We believe that that happened, but we often think that like, the greatest righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us was those three years of ministry, and even more, those few days leading right up to the cross, where that was actually just a culmination of life, 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 of Jesus living a completely perfect, from our vantage point, mundane, normal, boring life. He was born where? Bethlehem. Where did he grow up? That was a good Bible quiz time. <laughs> you, guys, you guys all aced it. Everyone who didn't answer, you, you aced it too. Um, <laughs> Nazareth was not known to be like a very kind of sexy, urban, you know, hot city. Like it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as cool as Seattle. It was, it was a little more, <laughs> I won't actually name what cities I think it might be like. <laughs> picture, picture that city in your mind that, um, that you would try to avoid buying a house in. Can, can, any, can anything good come from Nazareth was the saying, right? And then he was born from kind of a, a, from Mary, but with an adoptive father, Joseph, who was um, carpenter, probably more actually a stonemason. There wasn't as much lumber there. A lot of it had been ported in, but literally construction worker, swinging a hammer, trowel. Um, another saying that was said around is, isn't this Joseph's son? Not like, oh, that's Joseph's son. That makes sense. That, that family, that family was something. It was like the Kardashians of the day. Like, he, it was very just... Joe Blow, Joseph Normal, like nothing spectacular about it, but he lived in such a way that the people, when they did try to say things against him, couldn't say, oh yeah, you're that guy. Like they had nothing bad to say about him, but they completely bashed his circumstances and where it came from and what he did. He didn't live a life of significance as we would understand it. He lived a life of relative obscurity. So, Unlike our first parents, Adam and Eve, Jesus lived his whole life perfectly. Unlike the, faith, the faithless Israelites who didn't trust and depend on God and were exiled, Jesus trusted and depended perfectly on his Father so that the, 33 out of, the 30 out of 33 years of Jesus' life, although they looked painfully mundane, that perfection of how he lived, actually recognizing following the Spirit, even in the most mundane and boring aspects of his life are now the way that we're seen. We're seen as people that live perfectly if we have trusted in Jesus and he's given us his perfect record with the Father. Um, so two questions for us. Um, actually, I'm, I'm not going to skip that part. Um, but asking the question, if this is what God's always done, um, what does it look like now? Like, what does it actually look like in the details of how we live? So moving to the next slide, that we are embedded disciples. Um, this section coming from the idea that we are to live where we are and seek the welfare of those around us, that in Burian's welfare, we will actually have welfare. 
So going very practically, it's not mainly miracles, great leadership, um, dynamic church, great programs, um, or influence that are really going to make the lasting change. But like Jesus taught, the church is like a mustard seed. It's like leaven in a loaf. It's a kingdom that grows underground, almost unseen by the naked eye. And with that, let's start out with some ways um, that we should not live. We're going to move to what it looks like to live as disciples that are embedded, that are invested, and that are really rooted in our community. But ways we shouldn't live, starting off with, we should not first assimilate. Um, Sounds like the Borg Star Trek talk there, but I couldn't think of a better alliterated word there. Um, There's a certain way that God's people are supposed to live. So when when Jeremiah tells them to build houses and live in them and raise children, that is a very normal kind of thing that could apply to anyone in Babylon, but it was specific for God's people that they would raise their children a certain way. It was specific for God's people that they would bless their, their workplaces, they would bless their communities a certain way. And we have that all through the law that God gave beforehand. And at the end of the 70 years, when God did call them out, um, historically many chose to stay even though it started in a really horrible place where they were, again, fish hooks through the lips, dragged to Babylon, many got very comfortable in that culture, comfortable with the values of the Babylonians, comfortable with the gods and the worship, and they chose to stay. The same thing that drove them to Babylon drove them to stay. They were not dependent on God. So I think we should ask ourselves, if God asked us something like he, like he asked them when he delivered them to give up those houses we've invested in, to give up um, your town or your job, could we? And I don't think that God's calling most of us um, to give up our house completely right now or to give up our job, but the question is, could we? Or have we become too entangled in the culture around us that we really have become not just in the world, but we've become of it? We shouldn't isolate. This is another extreme. Um, just like the assimilation, assimilating to our neighborhood and our culture is kind of grabbing onto the things that are comfortable and not wanting to let go, sacrifice. Isolation is the same way. It's the other extreme, but just like most extremes, they're motivated by the same thing. It's comfort. In the same way that we can be comfortable with rebellious living and assimilate, we can be comfortable with religious living and isolate, essentially section ourselves off as a people, as Taproot Church, to become a little community within a community that has minimal interaction with those outside. Um, seeking the welfare part, welfare will not happen if we're not in relationship with people that are outside of the church. So when Jesus says to be in the world, not of it, um, if living in the world just meant literally breathing on earth, what would Jesus mean? There's something that he's commanding us when he says to be in the world. It's more than just breathing and living here, but actually being in a relationship, knowing people in our community. We can ask ourselves, are you considered invested in and highly involved in your workplace? Or would your employer and coworkers look at you and be like, oh, that guy's just in there to clock in and clock off. He doesn't really care about what he's, he or she is producing or doing or accomplishing. It's pretty much just there for a paycheck, which most people are. But it's noticeable. It's noticeable if you parent in a certain way that's not just kind of putting out fires, not just, oh, my kids are making me uncomfortable, so I'm going to discipline them, but proactively teaching and talking to your kids about things in life. 
that's noticeably different than the way most parents parent. It's mostly reactive. Same thing with work. If we're working in a proactive way where we're looking at ways to actually bless and help our workplaces and our community, it's noticed. We actually have a point. We're working from, we're parenting from, we're living from rest. Um, and so we have energy to really pour in into care. Another question on a more personal level, are there non-believers in your life that would consider you a close friend and not just an acquaintance? Would you be the phone call when one of their loved ones dies? Do they see your life as about Jesus? Because we can easily have those kind of relationships yet have assimilated into that culture. And they're not actually coming to us because they see Jesus in us. They're just seeing us as another, another person. Um, so those questions um, are good ones for us to ask. And the third one that we shouldn't accommodate, uh, I see that as kind of an in-between place. Like most of us aren't living in a place of complete isolation from our culture and the world around us. Most of us aren't living in a place of complete assimilation where we would look exactly like a non-believer in every single way, but most of us are living in a place of accommodating in one direction or another, sometimes in both. And we're likely to be in that middle place more than we would on the far extremes. But accommodating is in the details. It's, it's the little things. It's, you know, the saying goes, the devil's in the details. The temptation to hold on to comfort and not Christ is going to be in those small details. And I think the way we can tell whether we're accommodating to our culture or actually being faithful to Jesus is asking on areas that the Bible doesn't have like a super, super clear voice or a clear verse on, um, are we getting our kind of orders from the culture around us? Oh, well, this is what everyone else does when it comes to how we think about retirement rather than the Bible might not have a verse on American retirement, but are we looking for principles to be guided by in Scripture? And we're asking questions about how do we discipline our kids? Physical discipline is a very controversial thing in our culture, and there's going to be a certain way that the culture is going to steer you to what your values should be, rather than should we look in Scripture and see what God would guide us towards? Um, school. I know that my wife and I first got married her family, the culture was very, very present that if you can go to school, of course you would. doesn't matter how much in debt you get. doesn't matter how much it costs. doesn't even matter if God calls you somewhere else. Of course he's calling you to school first. Are we getting those values from our culture or from scripture? Work promotions. It's in our culture almost always a better thing to climb the ladder. We live in Seattle. Like Our ladder is high. You work at Amazon, you can just keep going and going and going. Boeing, all these large companies, is it always a foregone conclusion that God wants us to take a promotion or to move to a better neighborhood or to have a larger house? You can probably tell that I think that sometimes the answer is no on those things. I think many times it's yes. I don't think those are necessarily bad things. But are we actually trying to get our guidance from Scripture? Or are we getting it from the values of the culture around us. I think that question will help, help us understand if we are subtly accommodating to the culture and not actually being embedded disciples. So when he finishes saying, build houses, live in them, have kids, get married, he moves right on to the fact that there are false preachers in the day. They were pretty much saying, don't put down roots. 
And I think one of the main things that the false teachers were doing is they're trying to settle, sell and peddle a, a false gospel of comfort to the Israelites. Um, and comfort is, um, as it's been said, the silent killer. You can, like a frog in boiling water, just be in the most comfortable place when if we read Jesus' words and we see Jesus' life, you'll be hard-pressed to find anything that says that the Christian life is going to be one that is continually sent into comfort. There's going to be this peace and inner comfort that it can be with us wherever we are, but from the outside, we're called to take up our cross and to sacrifice and to, to love in a way that's costly to us and to give in a way that's costly. There's a, a guy named Levi the Poet. He does kind of like a spoken word. Um, it's like a little bit of a hip-hop beat, and he had a, a line here that, that I thought about when I was reading this, and he's talking about comfort and drifting that comes from living in comfort. He says, now it's too late. I know that drifting is a deeper threat than betrayal. No one, ha- no one has to convince you to abandon anything. You just inevitably end up downstream. You maintain your pride and wonder why the world keeps on shifting, convinced you're still standing in the same place. You never mean to drift away. And he's writing this as a story to his daughter um, about his own heart drifting. Your mother used to say, I was afraid, but apathy is not the same as escape. And I was never running from you. It's just that I was never fighting for you. Indifference sneaks in, indifference sneaks in subtly, and subtleties can kill a man. I think it's a good word for us as a church in America that is on a precipice. We're in a place where increasingly it's not going to be as comfortable to be a Christian. And I think, I think we have a choice to make now in our lives. If God's putting something on our heart that he's calling us to that would be really uncomfortable, and actually if we didn't follow his call, most people wouldn't notice or care because it would be living a normal life. I think he's calling us to make a choice between the cross or our comfort. So the two areas I want to focus on, on how we are to be embedded disciples, um, are, are two, two phrases, staying where we live and praying for where we live. And again, I do believe that God does call people to different places. I do believe he does call people to different jobs. I do believe he does call people um, to different things. But I think that our tendency, um, as Americans, but also just for me as in the younger generation, is to do many things poorly rather than a few things well. And I think that's the same geographically. Um, we're one of the most transient areas, Seattle, the Seattle hub is, in the whole country. We have people that come in. I, I don't remember what the statistic was. I think it was something about the average time spent in Seattle for like a young family or a single. It was something right under two years. And so if you think, how well are you going to get to know and pour into and even see neighbors made as disciples when they're only around a little less than two years? Um, you have it more in like military towns. You have it more next to colleges. Burien's a little different, but we still have some of that same culture. But I'm challenging us as Christians, if we want to see long-term change in our area, we have to be long-term in our area to change that. And if, if you guys noticed, um, even though I told you the Babylonians carried Israel into exile in that completely horrific way, the way it's phrased here and, and God's words that he gave through Jeremiah to Israel is that I carried you into exile. 
And it's, to me, it seems like it's the same idea and principle that we see in Acts 17, where it talks about God has appointed the times and places that we live. And I think we recognize that, but I don't think, I don't think very many people really think that way when it comes to their own decisions and their own um, desires and their own opportunities in your life. Um, think back on, I mean, I was thinking about this um, when I was preparing, like, on the, think my wife and I have lived in five or six different places, and I was trying to think through, I don't have a great memory, but I was thinking through what were the reasons I had for why and where we moved. And I, I definitely noticed a shift in more of the recent moves to a place, to, a, to something where we weren't looking around in Burien, we weren't looking around in Rainier Valley. We felt there was a lot of things that were unattractive about the areas that God called us to, but we moved because he called us. And I think it's a helpful thing to look on your own life and say, am I drifting? Is there an aimlessness where I'm following the things that are really the values of this world? Or do I have a very direct, clear call and direction from God? Or even the things that seem like the non-Christian categories of where I work and where I live, those are very much the Christian categories because that's where God's called us to be. Um, Has the focus and where you've moved or what jobs you've taken or the people you've befriended um, been firstly on how to make better disciples. As, as a church, we are committed, and this is a, this is a phrase that we've latched onto, um, to, to show and the, to live that we exist to make disciples of Jesus. And a disciple is someone who has radically reoriented, reoriented their life around him. And radical even though it's kind of an 80s, 90s sounding word, it was an intentional word because it's not just orienting our lives like, oh, nice to have Jesus a little here. Maybe a little Jesus here would help me out. Maybe a little Jesus here would, would kind of help me raise my kids. But we're reorienting our lives around his lives, not vice versa. There's, there's something that is radical about that because that is very countercultural to what we see around us. So the second point, um, praying for where we live, um, just thinking about how Jesus tells us to, to love our enemies, and if you were dragged in by a fish hook through your lip and essentially told to live next to the person that did that to you, um, that's a real challenge. It's not just that nice you know, coffee cup verse of love your enemies. I don't know if anybody has that on a coffee cup, but I feel like, I feel like people, some people might. It's kind of an edgy city. Um, but it's, it's real. It's tangible when you're recognizing, oh, it's not just an enemy group. It's someone who is personally done and hurt me. Um, prayer aligns our hearts with God's heart. So if God has a love for the Babylonians and he wants their welfare and he wants them to have welfare through the love of the Israelites, prayer is what does that. Prayer helps us share the heart of God. Um, and so it's something to just try. Most people, if I say who in your life aggravates you the most, who is the person that is on your top of I avoid them generally list. Um, who bugs you just by them being them? That's the person you should pray for and see what happens. See if God actually uses those prayers to make a very noticed change in how you interact with that person. And see if that doesn't um, start to change that relationship or the workplace that you're in with them um, or those family interactions. So lastly, I'm going to focus in on that we're dependent disciples. Um, the, the one that is more of a coffee cup verse, more than the love your enemies, um, is for I know the plans I have for you, right? It's, it's the kind of coffee cup you give to the graduate who's 
you know, wondering what are my plans? Like, what am I doing? Like, I did the school, now I'm just on my own? Oh, here's your verse. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to work at Boeing and plans to, <laughs> we, tend to we tend to give that as this kind of like, oh, don't worry, like, God has big things for you. When, when we look at the plans that he did have for them, they don't necessarily look like big things. They just look like normal things. Um, it's, it's sometimes used as kind of an, an escapism from the mundane kind of verse, like, oh, you, you'll have a purpose, you'll have a point, you'll have an impact, you'll change the world, you'll be president, right? But as Dan has mentioned, and we've been saying over and over at Taproot, is, is that we desire to be a peaceful presence in the midst of a panicked culture. It really is the presence and, and our trust that even though things aren't great right now, there's a plan and a point for this. Even if things are just mundane, or you struggle with cycles of, of depression or just loneliness, God has a point in the right now for you. Um, sometimes people in Christian culture have quoted this as though it's this big, you'll have a huge impact and God will do miracles through you. Um, maybe you'll have a, a building or a street named after you. We always err towards assuming that God's plans for us are, are more flashy than they are just faithfulness. There's a, a pretty popular video going around uh, Facebook right now, this viral video. It's like nine minutes long, which is pretty impressive for a viral video. People actually watch videos that long. Um, but ironically, the video was about how we have a culture of impatience. And it's kind of somewhat bashing the millennial generation. Um, in some ways, he's not putting all the, the impetus of blame on the millennials. But we do have increasingly this, this fast food nation of my way right away and everything's instantaneous. You can get the new Amazon buttons in your house that you just literally push. You know, stick them next to your toilet paper and you just push it when you're out. And then it shows up online and orders it for you. It's, it's crazy. Like, you can just ask, you know, Alexis across the room to do something for you. Like, we, we, we really do have a culture of immediacy that isn't just our culture and our generation. It's been kind of moving that way for a long, long time. And one of the things that he talked about in that video, um, that coming along with, like, a sense of entitlement in our culture, um, this, this kind of like line that's given that we grew up with thinking that we're going to make waves and make a huge difference and kind of like be that you know, head of a corporation or, or some kind of noticeable, influential place. And he kind of, I mean, he talks about this, this idea like that it leads to this people feeling f continually frustrated and that life is futile um, because the quick, flashy fixes never last. Like everything like really worthwhile takes time. And it's hard. And it's hard to, to recognize that, you know, someone that's working a job, this, this guy was saying, for, you know, a year, and feels frustrated that they're not, like, changing the whole environment and changing, you know, the course of the company. Um, it's true that, like, you don't really make lasting change without a rooted, um, really intentional, focused, long relationship and, and long work. And so... What he was saying, though, it resonates because even though we're not meant to get that kind of like fulfillment through the quick fixes and through us being you know, recognized in the big flashy ways, we do have those longings for a reason. And God put a longing in all of us to be wrapped up in a story that's much bigger than ourselves and to actually have significance in our world. That's something that God actually put in us at our creation and the way he made us. And if God's plans for you aren't 
like a, the dream job or the dream house or the dream spouse or um, just the, the career path that you'd always envisioned or being able to have kids and move closer to the parents. If, if God gives you a life and has a plan for you that is much less comfortable and maybe much more normal than you're expecting, a boring life from the outside perspective, the simple question, would that kill you? Like, could you do that? And I'm not saying that God has a life of insignificance and boringness and mundane, but it may look that way, but are we able to actually find our significance and our value and the meaning of what we do in Jesus? Um, does a quiet life of faithful living and working as the slow preserving salt of the earth, the slow increasing leaven in the loaf, um, does it seem loathsome or is that actually is that actually an amazing commission? Is that an amazing call that even those that will never climb that ladder more than a rung or two, those that will never get to that peak of achievement that they're going for or will have the kids they were hoping to have, the significance isn't in those things. Like, even though he says, build houses, live in them, have kids, you notice who he called into Babylon? He took eunuchs. These guys aren't going to be able to have kids. Like, it's, it's not just about having this influence in the culture through kind of outward means. It's about this inward peace, this living, a quiet, gospel-centered life that transforms our culture from the inside out, not the outside in. The question is, is it really Jesus you desire to be noticed through your life or yourself? And lastly, we're desired to depend. Um, the first thing... I want to mention with this last point is that the last three verses of, of our section, um, I've, I've heard it called in commentaries, it's kind of an evangelistic call where it's saying, you know, I will be found for you. If you seek me with all your heart, I will come to you. I will come back and deliver you. I will restore and repay. Um, I don't think it's as much of a personal evangelistic call. If you look at the way it's phrased, six times he says, you will call upon me, I will be found by you, I will restore. This word will, this is something that God is actually saying he will do. It's a declaration more than it is an invitation. But it's a declaration that we will be in a place of dependence. This isn't just about when you come to meet Jesus, you will call upon him as you seek him and you will find him. That's true. If someone's in this room that's never met Jesus, has never kind of met the maker of their own soul and the one that gives meaning to all of life. If you seek for him, you will find him. But this is written for the people of God, primarily too. It, those that are walking with Jesus don't just find him and then coast on their own. And just, all right, now that I have Jesus, is kind of my fire insurance there, keep me from hell. I'll just live my life in that American dream. You know, two kids, two dogs, a wife, um, picket fence, I don't know, football. <laughs> Like, I, don't, I don't know what's, all the American things that we want, the things that are, are, are they're good things, but God calls us to something that is actually rooted in dependence. He calls us to be continually in a place that we're calling on him, that we're depending on him, that he's able to be found and to restore us. Um, we can be confident that God will use our exile periods, the times in our life that we're living in what we think to be the mundane of life, for something that has a cosmic reality, something that has eternal weight and effect, something that will bring long-lasting fruit 
in our lives and the people that will go on after we pass. And we can lean into what he's doing. We can recognize that we have deep dependence on him. Um, I'll close with this. Recently, uh, Pastor Jim and I were teaching the uh, membership class for a few couples. And it struck me, um, really for the first time, even though I did go through the member class, um, I never really noticed it much. But when he talks about, in the curriculum, the curriculum lists three ways that we know God. And the first list is we know him cerebrally. Like we know things about God, we know information about him, we know attributes, and it's kind of head knowledge. And the second one is emotionally. There is a heart knowledge, like we experience who God is as he's a person. The spirit is a person and we're in a relationship. And so those two made sense. I've always understood that. And then he listed a third one on there that I just thought was kind of like, oh, he likes three, so he decided to throw a third one in. But... We, and Dan does like groups of threes. Um, but we know God through dependence. And I was really just struck by that recently, especially in teaching that class, that there's a difference between just knowing who God is in our minds and experiencing who he is like emotionally and, and feeling a relationship with him. He actually wants us to be dependent on him and live in such a way that he is our portion, that he is our rest, that he is the one that gives us the strength to work, that he's the one that gives us the strength to parent. Um, and just the, the concrete hope that is given. Um, he, there is a hope in a future, his word says, right? Like there's, there's a point. And even though we may not experience that outwardly in a way that looks like victory and deliverance, we may not see Jesus come back in our lifetime. And maybe 70 years past our death, but we will experience and we do get to see him working and him living through his people as we depend on him. So I think to wrap up, um, I'll just leave with the question. If God gave you what would seem to be from the outside the most plain, boring commission for your life, and I don't think he will. I think that there's a lot of people in this room that are going to do amazing things that will be in amazing positions of, of leadership and influence. But if he did, if he, if he gave you a life that's kind of like John the Baptist, kind of like Jesus, kind of like most of the disciples, would that be enough? And would you be able to recognize and see the significance and the meaning that God has for you in the mundane? Um, and if not, the second question would be, what things are you holding on to for your comfort? You won't, ex- you won't be able to experience how much God is enough, how much God will give you that meaning in the most mundane parts of your life if you're not willing to depend on him for it and you're busy trying to get your own position and your own to be noticed and to get your own um, influence in, in, in a way of comfort. It's much less comfortable to depend on God in the day in, day out, slug after one after another, slow, slow movement of life um, than it is to just have a flashy miracle after a flashy miracle. But if, as Christians, we're meant to be marked by faith, faith always comes along with long stretches of time. There's no such thing as quick faith. Um, so with that, I'm going to pray for us and have um, the band come up. Father, I just thank you so much, God, that you, um, you didn't just create 
this world and create us in such a way that, that we are audience members watching what you're doing. Um, you've created us, this world, as a stage, and, and we are characters that are showing your artistry, that are showing your story, that are showing your plan. Lord, I thank you that you've given us meaning. Um, you've given us a point in what would seem pointless. You've given us direction um, when the world just calls us to follow our hearts and to seek our own comfort. You've called us to something different and more grand and of a magnitude that none of us can see. Our lives and our actions um, the small conversations we have with our little kids, um, the connecting we have with our spouses when we get home from work, the wearying day-to-day jobs and in school. Lord, all those things are going to bear eternal fruit when they're done, as your word says, all for your glory, when we work as if unto the Lord. God, I pray that we would recognize that there is a future hope. The things that don't make sense and and the the questions of why you have us where you have us. Why are we we still where we were at last year? Those questions have an answer and there is a point and there is meaning in where you've put us right now. You've appointed these times and these places that we live in. So God, even though right now we are like the back of a tapestry where it makes no sense, in the end, we will have that tapestry turned over and we will see the beautiful things that you've been creating through our lives and through our faithfulness and through the small details of our day-to-day. So Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a God who has wrapped us in and brought us next to you into this great story that you are giving us.